This audio is brought to you by MuslimCentral.com. As I will frequently say, it's good to go back and review some of the previous episodes, inshallah ta'ala, especially as you keep hearing the same names over and over and over again. There's a study of the seerah of the Prophet when you start from the beginning and go to the end. One of the benefits of studying the Sahaba in this fashion, especially when we're doing chronologically, everyone that we've studied are the people that Umar anhu would put in the front of the line, the earliest people to Islam. And you keep on hearing these names over and over and over again, then inshallah ta'ala, it reinforces a connection that you may have otherwise been aware of. Now, tonight's biography is, uh, is one that's very special to me. Uh, when Muhsin was founded, Muslims understanding and helping special education needs, and you start to look through the biographies of the Sahaba to find the stories about disability, this is the story that always comes up first. This is the one that we talk about. This is the go-to to try to impress upon Muslims the importance of honoring those with special needs with a special honor. And this is a person who Allah has revealed Qur'an about. And not just one time, more than one time. And SubhanAllah, what I find very interesting about this person that we're talking about tonight is that most people only know him through one incident. But SubhanAllah, he has an extensive biography alongside the Prophet and he had a position amongst the companions that inshallah ta'ala we will talk about today and his name is Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Now what's very interesting about this as we get started is that there's actually a difference of opinion about his name, all right? So the people of Medina, the scholars of Medina, they said his name was Abdullah. The scholars of Iraq said his name was actually Amr ibn Umm Maktoum. So Abdullah or Amr ibn Umm Maktoum. And there's also a narration that his name prior to Islam was Husayn. Husayn with a sad, not Husayn radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Husayn. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam changed his name to Abdullah. This is also the case, by the way, of the famous Jewish rabbi in Al-Madinah uh, who became a great scholar and companion of the Prophet sallallahu Abdullah ibn Salam. I will ask you when one day we do his biography what his name was prior to Islam. His name was also Husayn, and the Prophet changed his name to Abdullah. So, Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum. Now, before I start talking about anything in regards to him, all right, does he come from the lower class of Mecca or from the higher class of Mecca? How many of you say lower? You have to raise your hand, all right? So none of that, like, I don't know. How many of you say higher? All right, the two people are actually right. Abdullah bin Maktoum is not from the lower class of Mecca. He has a disability, but he's actually a person of good lineage. Good in the sense of the Meccan standards of lineage, right? The days of ignorance. Uh, he is actually the first cousin of none other than our mother Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha. All right? So here's what another test for you. And I might give you my laptop if you answer this properly. What was Khadija radiallahu anha's mom named? Just her first name. I'll give you a clue, but I'm not giving you my laptop because you didn't answer it without. So her mom's name was also one of the names of one of her daughters. Not Zainab. Fatima. All right. Khadija radiallahu anha's mother was Fatima bint Zaida. Okay. So Fatima bint Zaida uh, bint Qais is the sister of 
the father of Abdullah bin Umm Maktoum. So she is the paternal aunt of Abdullah bin Umm Maktoum. Abdullah is the son of Qais ibn Zaidah. Qais ibn Zaidah. So his actual name is Abdullah ibn Qais ibn Zaidah. And I'll talk about why he's named after his mother or he's referred to by his mother instead. So his name is Abdullah ibn Qais ibn Zaidah. Qais is the brother of the mother of Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha and her name was Fatima bint Zaidah. And the mother of Abdullah uh, ibn Qais ibn uh, Zaidah is a woman by the name of Atika bint Abdullah al-Makhzumiyya. She's from the tribe of Banu Makhzum. So Atika bint Abdullah from the tribe of Banu Makhzum. Who is also from the tribe of Banu Makhzum? Come on, somebody make me really happy. It's come up a few times. Abu Jahl, great. Okay, so Abu Jahl. This is the tribe of Abu Jahl, which again was a key competing tribe with the Prophet Wasallam's tribe of Banu Hashim. And probably the main under, underlying reason, or definitely the main underlying reason for Abu Jahl's insistence that we could not acknowledge the Prophet Wasallam, because otherwise this gives Banu Hashim permanent status over Banu Makhzum. So he has pretty good lineage, right? I mean, both sides of his family are Qurashi. They're from a high place in Quraysh. Uh, but at the same time, he has this disability, which he's famous for, which is blindness. And there's something really interesting to be said about this, that, uh, that, you know, that the, the biographers say that he's the only companion of the Prophet that we know of that was actually born blind. Okay, So he was born without vision. It was very common for them, and you read about many of the Sahaba who lost their vision later on in life. Very common to read about. I mean, everyone from Abdullah bin Abbas, other great scholars, and you'll read that by the time that these Sahaba became elderly, they lost their vision. But he's actually the only companion that we know of that was born uh, without uh, vision. And this is why his mother is nicknamed Umm Maktoum. Maktoum comes from Ketum, which is concealed. So she is the mother of him, Al Maktoum, the one who could not see. His vision was concealed. He was unable to see the world around him. SubhanAllah, how these things play out in life. You have no idea how these names are going to unveil themselves later on in life. So he's technically referred to, he was Al Maktoum. Okay? He's not able to see the world around him. So his mother was who? They, they said it as an expression of sympathy for her. She is Umm Maktoum. She's the mother of the blind child. Okay? So Abdullah, it's not that he, and that's why you don't find that he was, you know, he wasn't amongst those that was oppressed, like Bilal and Suhaib and Ammar and Miqdad and Khabbab, right? He's, he escapes that level of torture because though our, our vision of him tends to be one who belonged to that lower class in that sense, he wasn't, right? So he's not someone who's going to be persecuted in Mecca that we know of. In fact, we know of no persecution of him. It could have been sympathy towards him, or it could have been that his status protected him, or a combination of the two, okay? So he is Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and because he is the first cousin of Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha, he was already familiar with the character of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam before the Prophet sallallahu began his call, and so as soon as he heard about the call, he said, Aslamt, I believe. I believe in the religion of this noble man. He witnessed his character. He, Tawheed, the idea of monotheism resonated with him. So Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, is actually considered 
one of the earliest converts of Islam. And the way that you know someone is very early on in Islam is when they say that they became Muslim even before Dar al-Arqam opened up for the earliest converts. So his connection to Khadija radiallahu anha perhaps allowed him to know that the Prophet was calling to Islam early on. And so Abdullah ibn Maktoum anhu embraced Islam early on, did not need much convincing and accepts the Messenger With all that being said, the only story we know about him in Mecca is the one that he's most famous for, okay? Which is the story of Abasa, the story of Abasa. So let's dissect the story a bit, inshallah, then we'll talk about the rich biography of him after Abasa, after the story took place. The Prophet was trying to get the attention of the nobles of Quraysh. That is not a mission or that is not a priority that is to be dismissed. The Prophet some figures, if I can get some of these people to become, to become Muslim, then that is going to have an immediate impact on both the ability of the early Muslims to practice their religion freely in society as well as other people converting because when powerful people convert, then those that look to them either out of a sense of tribal obligation or because they, ha they hold a certain position in society, they will also follow. The proof is in Umar anhu and Hamza anhu who embraced Islam only three days apart and changed the course of Islamic history, right? So the Prophet is trying to speak to these people and he does not shut the door on them. And so finally, they tell the Prophet look, you want us to listen to you? We'll listen to you. Come meet us at this place. So the Prophet goes to meet with the elders of the leaders of Quraysh. And I will name them for a moment, okay? Utbah ibn Rabi'ah and his brother Shayba. Utbah, the father of Abu Hudayfa radiallahu ta'ala anhu. We talked about the position of Utbah in society. Utbah is, the, is, is, you know, there's a famous incident of him uh, the, the, the leaders of Quraysh eventually trying to send him to, to reason with the Prophet and stop him from calling and saying, we'll give you everything that Mecca has to offer for you to stop this call. So Utbah's in this gathering. Utbah's brother, Shayba, is in this gathering. Umayyah ibn Khalaf, who of course is most famous for being the one who, who, who uh, possessed and, and tortured, persecuted Bilal anhu, as he embraced Islam. So you have Utbah, Shayba, Umayyah, Abu Jahl is giving the Prophet, seemingly giving the Prophet Sallallahu an ear. All right? Add on to all of that, the person who mocked the revelation itself, Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira, the father of Khalid radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira, Allah refers to him in the Qur'an. Okay? Da'ni wa man khalaqtu wahida. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala threatens him with punishment in the Qur'an because he, he basically mocked the Qur'an and said, I know I can tell these stories of the past and I can buy my way out of hell if there is a hell anyway. That's the arrogance of Al-Walid. So these are the men that are sitting there and saying, go ahead and address us. We're gonna, we're gonna give you a chance to give us this message of yours. Golden opportunity, right? The Prophet Wasallam sits with them. And as he sits with them, Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who is looked down in society, not again because of his tribal status, but because of his disability. And he wasn't someone that really, you know, participated in the workplace or anything like that. So he comes to the Prophet running. Okay? 
Yasa. Alright? He's coming to the Prophet, he's looking for him anywhere he can find him. Now there's something that's very important to mention here. Rasulullah had made himself so accessible to Abdullah bin Umaktum that that was the nature of their relationship. Abdullah bin Umm Maktoum would come out, would look for him, he would find him, put his hands on him, and the Prophet would talk to him for as long as he wanted to talk to him. So there's a, a, a pretext to this incident that should not be lost about the character of the Prophet Whatever you need, ask. And the Prophet would answer him with whatever he wanted. He has no idea who else is around the Prophet Rasulullah is in the middle of this conversation feeling like he's finally garnering the attention of these people who hated him and who persecuted him for surrounding himself with the lowly of whom one is coming and rushing to the Prophet On top of that, he's raising his voice and he's saying, Ya Muhammad, alimni mimma allamakallah. Ya Muhammad, alimni mimma allamakallah. Ya Muhammad, alimni mimma allamakallah. So he says it loudly, O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, teach me from what Allah has taught you Teach me from what Allah has taught you. Teach me from what Allah has taught you. And he's looking for the Prophet and when he find, he says, bring me close to you, Ya Muhammad. Sit me close to you. Adnini, bring me close to you so, so I can listen to you. Let's talk right now. Because that's how the Prophet was with him. He has no idea what is happening. And by the way, uh, the prohibition came later on. Just, this is just very interesting because it comes in the books of Tafsir to call the Prophet by his name and form of Nida, to call him Ya Muhammad, to call out to him and say Ya Muhammad. You can of course call him Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, but not to refer to him, call out to him, as Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says, Don't make it that you call upon the Messenger the way that you call upon one another. So this is a prohibition that comes later on. Right now, Ya Muhammad, teach me from what Allah taught you. Only the hypocrites would use it after that, that form of addressing the Prophet So when he does that, the Prophet does not tell him, go away. He doesn't tell him, I'm busy. He doesn't push him. He simply abasa. Abasa means, literally by the way, he moved his two eyebrows close to each other in a means of like being frustrated, like not now, right? Abasa, and would Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum had known that the Prophet did that, had the revelation not come? No, he wouldn't have even known because he couldn't see him, right? But the elders could see him, okay? Those people from Quraysh could see the Prophet expressing the displeasure and the dismissal in his face towards Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum and then he simply continued to talk to the Prophet turned back to them after he shouted out that way and the Prophet continued to address these five men. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not implicitly say to the Prophet that something is wrong with this. Allah did not send Jibreel to the Prophet outside of the capacity of Qur'an which happens sometimes to tell the Prophet about what he should do or instruct him on what to do next. Allah reveals 16 verses for this man. Just think about that for a moment. He revealed 10 verses to clear the name of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha in Surah An-Nur. Allah reveals 16 verses admonishing the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam for that. Shows you the standard that Allah holds his messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam to. But this is not to make an example out of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, it's to make an example for the ummah that things have changed about the way that we look at people. That 
there is a paradigm shift that has to take place in our hearts and our vision towards the world around us and towards how we look at people. So it wasn't even a private revelation to the Prophet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals Abasa wa tawalla. He frowned and he turned away. As the blind man came to him, interrupting him. How do you know he's not coming to you so that he may be purified? Or he would be reminded and the reminder would benefit, benefit him. Remember Allah told Musa and Harun that when you speak to Fir'aun, speak to him in a way perhaps he might he might be reminded and he might purify himself. So Allah is saying that's what you're looking for when you're speaking to a person. That's what makes a person worthy of listening to a message or being spoken to. How do you know that Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum perhaps he was coming to you so that he may be reminded and so that he may be purified. As for that person, Istaghna is not even a, a sense of rudeness and arrogance because right now the leaders of Mecca were not showing the Prophet rudeness. They actually were making it appear to him like, fine, we'll consider what you have to say. But istaghna means they feel independent of what you have to They don't really need what you have to say. We'll, we'll consider it. We may or may not need it. Whereas Abdullah ibn Maktoum, why is he acting with a sense of urgency? Is it because he's annoying? Is it because he wants to annoy the Prophet No, it's because he wants to get to Jannah. So whatever it is, we, don't, we actually, subhanAllah, through all of this, we don't know what he was going to ask the Prophet ﷺ actually. We don't know because it's irrelevant to the conversation. But he was coming to the Prophet ﷺ with that sense of urgency because he's worried about his akhirah. So these people, istaghna, they, you know, maybe we'll think about it, we'll, 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 we'll see if it has anything uh, to benefit us. فَأَنْتَ لَهُ تَصَدَّ And you're giving them your undivided attention? You're giving them your attention? Even though you would not be to blame if they were not to be purified. And as for that person who came to you with eagerness. One of the best things that these Sahaba took pride in is when Allah praised characters inside of them. And he is in awe of Allah. What does Allah say in the Quran? that those who truly have awe of Allah are truly learned people. They are people of knowledge. So the fruit of knowledge is khashya, is that you have awe of Allah. If you don't have awe of Allah, it doesn't matter how much you memorize and how much you know. Your knowledge is worthless. But khashya means that you have a true internal awe of God. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, وَهُوَ yakhsha. This person that came to you has an awe of Allah. فَأَنْتَ عَنْهُ talaha, And you didn't pay any attention to him. But know, O Prophet of Allah, this revelation is a reminder. So whoever wants to be reminded, let them be reminded. In written pages held in high honor. Right? These suhuf, these, these pages are far too elevated to be denigrated, to appease these filthy people. Who cares if they believe or they don't believe? You do da'wah to them, sure. But don't betray your principles to do da'wah to them in the name of da'wah. That's the difference. It's a noble thing that you want to call everybody to Allah. The famous person, the unknown person, the rich person, the poor person. You see some influence that could come out of that. But do not betray your essence and your principles to try to 
bring them. That's where you are now altering the da'wah itself. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that these are words that are on elevated pages. Marfu'atim mutahara. They are highly esteemed and purified. Bi'aydi safara. Kiramin barara. In the hands of angels who are scribes, honorable and virtuous. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends down 16 verses. 16 ayat of Quran for this incident. Subhanallah. And that's, by the way, one of the proofs of the Prophet's prophethood. Why would the Prophet admonish himself for an incident that most people didn't even know about? But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was teaching the ummah a lesson. And this is not humiliation to our Prophet This is an honor to our Prophet because this is the tarbiyah of the Prophet the way that the Prophet is being taught and we are being taught by extension. How do you think the Prophet looked at Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum after that incident? Every time he would see him, the Prophet would stand up and the Prophet would say to him, Marhaban biman atabani fihi rabbi. Marhaban, welcome to the one on whose behalf Allah admonished me. Welcome to the one on whose behalf Allah admonished me. SubhanAllah, the Prophet did not hold him in contempt because you got me in trouble with Allah. <laughs> No, absolutely not. You must be a special person for Allah to reveal Qur'an on your behalf like this. Marhaban biman atabani fihi rabbi. There are so many gems that we can take from the story. I don't want to take too long because I want to get into the biography, but obviously the tafsir uh, can be in and of itself. However, one thing, subhanAllah, uh, that I find very interesting, and I mentioned the names, Utba, Shayba, Umayyah. I mentioned Al-Walid ibn Mughira and Abu Jahl. Okay? Utba, Shayba, Umayyah, Abu Jahl, all of them died in Badr. All of them were killed in Badr. All right? Utba and Shayba in the very beginning of the battle and the duels. Abu Jahl and Umayyah. Abu Jahl had Abdullah bin Mas'ud you know, step on top of him and kill him, the one that he almost killed in front of the Kaaba one day. And Umayyah was killed by Bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who he once put under a stone. Bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu killed him in Badr. The only one who wasn't killed in Badr was Al-Walid because Al-Walid died before the Hijrah anyway. So he died in the Meccan period anyway. So subhanAllah, Allah humiliated all of those men. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honored those that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was told to honor. So this is Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So when do we actually start to get into a seerah? Actually in Medina. And it starts with this. Al-Bara' radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, awwalu man qadiba alayna, the first people to come to us in Medina were two people. Two people that came to us before anyone else came to us from Mecca. One of them is Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So he is the second person considered the second person to make hijrah. Who's the first person? The person we're talking about next week. Mus'ab ibn Umayr radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So he says, أَوَّلُ مَنْ قَدِمَ عَلَيْنَا Mus'ab ibn Umayr وَابْن Ummi Maktoum. The first two people the Prophet sent to us from Mecca were Mus'ab ibn Umayr and Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum. ثُمَّ قَدِمَ عَلَيْنَا عَمَّارُ بْنِ يَاسِرُ وَبِلَالُ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمْ أَجْمَعِينَ And then came Ammar ibn Yasir and Bilal. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with them all. What were they doing? What were Mus'ab and Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum doing in Medina before the Prophet had made his hijrah and he sent the, uh, the Muslims towards there? Uh, Bara radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, وَكَانَ يُقْرِئَانِ النَّاسِ 
they were teaching us the Qur'an. These two men were teaching the people the Qur'an. While we were waiting for the Prophet to come upon us, these were the two men that were around the Prophet when he received revelation in Mecca. They were going around and they were teaching the Muslim households in Medina the Qur'an. So Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum is the second person who made the Hijrah, which we're going to be talking about inshallah ta'ala. Uh, tomorrow as well and of course this is the month where the hijrah is revived so he is the second person the second muslim to go to medina after mus'ab and be commissioned with teaching the people the quran the muslims make the hijrah they go to medina and now as the preparations of badr start to take place abdullah ibn um maktoum is experiencing his first moment of being left out he wants to partake in the battle. He wants to strive alongside the Prophet ﷺ in Badr and the Prophet ﷺ does not put him in that position. So he's worried about his situation. In Mecca, everyone was kind of on the run and everyone was equally honored. Quran has already been revealed for him early on in Mecca, in Abasa. He knows the status with Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. I mean, that's as high as it gets. There was Abu Lahab, the lowest and then there's Abasa wa Tawalla, the first person about whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals his Qur'an in praise of is Abdullah ibn Maktoum radiallahu ta'ala and of course Abu Bakr al-Siddiq in Surah Al-Layl. So he knows the status, but Badr is happening. And he can't participate in Badr. And it made him so sad. So sad. You know, when someone has khashya of Allah, when they have awe of Allah, they're not seeking out excuses to not perform their obligations to Allah. They're trying to convince themselves that they can do things that they actually don't have to do because they want to please Allah that bad. Ramadan comes and you can't fast. It's not, you know, your, your, your health does not allow you to fast and you want to still fast. You're not obligated to do certain things. You want to still do it because of your love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's a khashya of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Abdullah ibn Maktoum missed out on the battles with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and he made this dua. He would say, Allahumma anzil udri. Allahumma anzil udri. Oh Allah, reveal my excuse. Oh Allah, reveal my excuse. He already knows that Allah revealed Quran for him once before. So, oh Allah, reveal an excuse for me. He wants to hear himself represented in the Quran because he's a very unique situation in this regard, not being able to go out and strive with the Prophet, though he was from the earliest Muslims. So, Zayd ibn Thabit tells the story. He says, I was with the Prophet ﷺ when the wahi used to come to him, when the revelation used to come to him, Zayd being one of the scribes of the Prophet ﷺ in Medina. And he said that the body of the Prophet ﷺ would become so weighty when revelation would come upon him that it could crush a mountain. And indeed, the revelation, when it came to the heart of the Prophet ﷺ, it literally, if he was on the camel, it made the knees of the camel buckle. Because لو أنزلنا هذا القرآن على جبل لرأيته خاشيا متصدعا من خشية الله. Had the Quran been revealed to a mountain, it would have flattened it. Out of what? Out of the khashiyah of Allah, out of the awe of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. So Zayd radiAllahu anhu said, one time my thigh was under the leg of the Prophet sallallahu when revelation came to him, and I could not feel my thigh anymore. I thought my leg was going to be amputated. Because when the revelation came to the Prophet ﷺ, I couldn't feel my leg under his leg anymore. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So this is an incident where he says 
that I was with the Prophet ﷺ and the revelation came upon him ﷺ and the Prophet ﷺ, we knew when he was receiving revelation, he said to me to bring forth a shoulder, meaning of an animal to write on, right? They were obviously containing the, uh, the written revelation on what was around them at that time. So he said, I brought it forth. And Allah revealed to the Prophet ﷺ, not equal are those who sit at home from the believers and those who strive in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They are not equal. How do you think that made Abdullah ibn Maktoum feel? Made him feel worse, right? Wait a minute, so I'm, I'm left out again. So he, he heard the Prophet say that, and he said, Ya Rasulullah, he said, O Messenger of Allah, فَمَا تَأْمُرُنِي فَإِنِّي رَجْلٌ ضَرِيرُ الْبَصَرِ Ya Rasulullah, what do you command me to do then? Because I can't see. I can't see. What am I supposed to do? SubhanAllah, Zayd anhu said, I noticed that, and this was different, this, you know, the revelation came upon the Prophet shortly thereafter. Allah sends Jibreel to the Prophet again. And the Prophet was overtaken by revelation again. And when the Prophet regained after that revelation the ability to convey it at that point, the ayah continued until غَيْرُ أُولِي الضَّرَرِ Surah Al-Nisa, except for those who have a disability. Except for those who have a disability. So subhanAllah, this part of the verse, غَيْرُ أُولِي الضَّرَرِ was revealed, Allah responding to the dua of Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum. This could have been explained through fiqh, right? Understanding, the sunnah explains the Qur'an. Just like many other things in the Qur'an, the verse is then explained and broken down by the Prophet Sallallahu explaining it. But Allah honored him with Qur'an again. <laughs> so another revelation comes down for him. And even though it's a few words, those few words were so beloved to him, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, uh, uh, and, and, you know, and, and something that he could hold on to, that Allah revealed in accordance with my dua, a udur, an excuse, and said, I am not considered amongst those who are left behind in any way whatsoever. So this is the first man that we see these two revelations come in regards to. Now what was his status in Medina? Who was the most famous mu'adhin of the Prophet It's Bilal radiallahu anhu. He is the mu'adhin of the Prophet Bilal is the caller of the Prophet The other caller of the Prophet was Abdullah ibn Maktoum. Now what does that look like in functioning in society, right? In the society. The Prophet used to send Bilal out to give the adhan for Qiyamul Layl. If you've ever been in Mecca, Medina, Umrah, Hajj, you get confused when you hear that adhan for Qiyamul Layl. You rush to the masjid and you're like, why is Fajr not happening? And then they do another adhan and you're like, this is weird. It might have happened to you if you've been for Umrah or Hajj. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the opportunity. Allahumma ameen. That is the adhan for Qiyam. So the Prophet would tell Bilal to go out and to call the Adhan and that would wake the people up sometime before Fajr. The Prophet then said, فَكُلُوا وَاشْرَبُوا حَتَّى يُؤَذِّنَ ابْنُ أُمِّ مكتوم. So eat and drink, meaning if you're planning to fast, eat and drink until you hear the Adhan of Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum that is the Adhan of Fajr. Okay? The wisdom of the Prophet Why couldn't Bilal just do both Adhans anhu? What is the function in that society 
when the first man that gives the Adhan and the most prominent man for the Adhan is someone who was in the most denigrated place in the days of Jahiliyyah, in the days of ignorance. Bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu. For his color, for his status, for uh, his, you know, lack of a tribe, everything that would be associated with lowliness in the days of ignorance due to their ignorance, not from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, associated to Bilal radiallahu anhu and look how Allah has elevated him. And now, the Prophet the second person who is honored, is the only companion who we know that was born blind, Abdullah ibn Maktoum radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Now here's the thing. How did Abdullah ibn Maktoum know that it was Fajr? Please do not say he had an iPhone. Alright? He did not have an Adhan clock. Isn't Fajr something that people saw in the skies? I don't know if you know this, but you actually see it in the sky. Alright? There's like a thing where Salah time is not based on an app. Okay, a fajr was based on, you know, the actual fajr, right? The break that you would see in the sky. And so, Abdullah ibn Maktoum radiallahu anhu could not even see it. So doesn't that complicate things further? Why would the Prophet choose him to give the adhan for a fajr he can't see? Not only that, how would it take place? Salim ibn Abdullah radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, كان ibn Ummi Maktoum rajulan a'ma that Ibn Umm Maktoum could not see anything, so he would not call the Fajr until someone would go to him and say, Asbahta, Asbaht, it's out, it's out, now you can call the Fajr. Why all this complication? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to honor that man. The Prophet was setting up a certain way within the community. And subhanAllah, we extract so many uh, rulings and so many lessons just from this alone. I'm going to go through some of them, by the way. The fact that the Sahabi was defined, their entire chapters like, a, like a, uh, a disclaimer, right? Because the Sahabi technically is someone who saw the Prophet and believed in him. Abdullah ibn Maktoum who never technically saw the Prophet Imagine what that did to him, subhanAllah. He never got to see him in this life. He knew him, he knew of him, he loved him, he adored him, he was everything, but he didn't see him. And so you'll find that the books, when they're explaining what a Sahabi is, there's like that paragraph at the bottom, but by the way, you know, for some people, this wasn't actually visibly seeing the Prophet it was being in his presence, knowing he was there and affirming that he was there Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So Ibn Maktoum could not see the sun, but Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala chose him to be the Mu'addin for Fajr, and Ibn Umm Maktoum could not see the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, but Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala uh, raised him in the presence of the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. There was another thing where the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and Anas Sallallahu Ta'ala Anhu Qal Istakhlafa Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Ibn Ummi Maktoum Ya Ummu Nasa Wa Huwa A'ma That the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam appointed him to lead the Salah. And that was something that wasn't looked at as, as something that could happen because they thought a person with a disability could not lead the prayer. The Prophet appointed Abdullah ibn Maktoum to lead the people in prayer, and he was blind. This goes on, by the way, to another honor, that when the Prophet would leave Medina, he would put Abdullah ibn Maktoum in charge. And not just symbolically, it was actually understood that Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum was in charge of Medina when the Prophet would exit from Medina. Anas anhu witnessed himself istakhlafa ibn Umm Maktoum ala al-Medina marratay. He put ibn Umm Maktoum anhu in charge of Medina. Anas anhu remembered uh, twice 
in the books of Seer mention 13 times that the Prophet made it clear that as he was going to the outskirts of Medina, Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum anhu, this blind man that you would not look at prior to Islam is in charge while I'm gone. So Mu'addin of the Prophet leads the prayer as the Prophet appoints him. And the Prophet puts him in a position of leadership if you look in the position in the chapters of the books of hadith, by the way, Bab Fidlarir Yuwalla, the chapter of a blind man can lead, can be in a position of leadership, right? So they establish it always with the rulings in regards to Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Some of the other famous incidents, by the way, um, are the incidents in regards to hijab in the presence of Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Umm Salama radiallahu anha says that one time, uh, uh, the Prophet ﷺ came and Maymuna anha was present and she was present. And Ibn Umm Maktoum came and they didn't put on their hijab. And uh, the Prophet ﷺ told them to do so. And they said to the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, isn't he blind? And the Prophet ﷺ said, uh, are you both blind as well? Are you both unable to see as well? Are, are you both unable to see as well? They said no. So the Prophet ﷺ said, then just, you know, uh, you know observe the, the veil in the presence of Ibn Maktoum anhu. So here's the thing. Is this something that is uh, established that if a person is blind, that a person still, that you still have to observe hijab around him? Yes or no? Okay. So here's where it gets interesting. Another incident, Fatima bint Qais, and this is just a seerah tidbit, but it has some fiqh to it as well. Fatima bin Qais anha, was the first cousin of Ibn Umm Maktoum, and the Prophet observed her or told her to observe her idda in divorce with him at that time. And the Prophet told her that you can remove your hijab in front of him because he cannot see. So Abu Dawood, anhu, he comments on this. He says, that هذه أزواج النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم خاصة ألا ترى إلى اعتداد فاطمة بنت قيس عند ابن أم مكتوم قد قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم لفاطمة اعتدي عند ابن أم مكتوم that you can you know Abu Dawood says this was specific to the wives of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم because as you can see he told فاطمة بنت قيس that she could pass her عدة in his presence and she did not have to observe the hijab however you know of course, you need to know that a person truly cannot see. All right, so there's something peculiar to uh, the wives of the Prophet ﷺ in this regard. However, the ruling uh, does not apply to everyone according to Abu Dawood and according to many of the scholars in that regard. Now, I'm going to fast forward, inshallah ta'ala, to two incidents, one of them being his death. And this first incident is very interesting. It's narrated by Al-Hakim al-Bayhaqi that Masruq ibn al-Ajda' Masruq ibn al-Ajda' was a student of Aisha radiallahu anha. Masruq radiallahu ta'ala anhu being one of the greatest students of Aisha radiallahu anha who collected her knowledge, passed it on to the next generation. Masruq ibn al-Ajda' he says that one day I came to Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha and I found her serving this, this blind man. He was wrapped up and she was serving him uh, utruj, which is like citrus fruit. She was cutting it up for him with her own hands and she was preparing asal, honey as well and she was taking it to him and she was honoring him. And I was shocked. I had no idea who he was. So I said to her, Ya Umm al-Mu'mineen, 
O our mother, O mother of the believers, who is this man for you to be cutting fruits for him and serving him honey and honoring him in this way? Like, this, this isn't what we're used to seeing. Who is this man? So Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha responds and she says, this is Ibn Umm Maktoum, الذي عاتب الله فيه نبيه صلى الله عليه وسلم the one upon whose behalf Allah admonished his prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم and then she narrated to him to me, Masruq who's narrating, she narrated to me the whole story of Abasa wa Tawalla and then she said and this is how the family of the prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم has been ordered to treat him since then so subhanAllah this legacy lives on with the whole family of the Prophet they knew that when Abdullah ibn Maktoum comes around, we have to treat him in a certain way because that's how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honored him. So subhanAllah, what about the followers of the Prophet May Allah count us amongst his family, his brothers, his sisters, that we honor this man as Aisha was still honoring him decades after the Prophet passed away in accordance with the order of the Prophet that this is a man who Allah honored with revelation, we should also honor him in accordance with that revelation. We come to his death and it's an interesting uh, story because everything that he was prohibited from coming to be in those last moments. In the year 636, uh, which coincides with 14 years after Hijrah, you had the most decisive battle between the Muslims and the most powerful empire in the world, which was the Persian Empire. So the most decisive battle takes place between the Muslims and the Persian Empire under Amir al-Mu'mineen, Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and this was called the Battle of Qadisiyah. Now in the Battle of Qadisiyah, the preparations for the Battle of Qadisiyah, which is again against an arrogant, large, powerful, ruthless empire, Umar anhu heard about the size of that army and it was over a hundred thousand people. Can you imagine an army in the seventh century that large? Over a hundred thousand people. The Persian Empire had prepared an army of over a hundred thousand people to basically say, let's do away with this nuisance of the Muslims once and for all. Let's wipe them off the face of the planet. When Umar got word of that effort to amass over 100,000 soldiers, there was a draft of sorts around the entire Muslim Ummah. Okay? So the calls to try to amass an army that could put up a fight against this army in Qadisiyah. So people are coming from around the Muslim Ummah and you have in Medina an effort to put forth people that Otherwise, you know, at, at that point it's voluntary, right? To go out in, in battle, this is, this is voluntary. But now there is an encouragement, how do we get as many people as possible to fight this massive battle under Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas radiallahu ta'ala anhu. As Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu is gathering the people, Abdullah ibn Maktoum radiallahu anhu comes to Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu and he says, Ya Amin al-Mu'mineen, let me go. But you can't, right? You have, you know, subhanAllah, this man did not participate in Badr, Uhud, Khand, for good reason. He didn't get to participate in those battles. Now you want to participate in this battle where, you know, it's an existential threat for the Muslim Ummah, at least outside of the area of Medina. What do you mean? He said, Ya Amir al Mu'mineen, let me go. Why am I going to go? He said, I'll read Quran to the people, I'll pray with the people, Qiyam, because 
By the way, subhanAllah, the nights before the battle, what did the Muslims used to do? Did they used to get a good night's sleep? No, they'd spend the nights in Qiyam al-Layl. They'd spend the nights in prayer before battle. So I'll go there. I mean, I was the first person next to Mus'ab to be sent to Medina to teach them the Qur'an, right? So I'll go with them. I'll teach them the Qur'an. I'll pray with them. But let me go with them, Ya Amir al-Mu'mini. So Umar anhu lets him go. Now, when they get to Qadisiyah, what it ends up being is that you have about 30,000 Muslims against this over 100,000 Persians. And Abdullah ibn Maktoum says, I want to fight with you all. I want to be in the battle. And they said to him, what are you going to do? And he said, Don't you need someone to hold the banner? Someone to be the flag bearer when you go out in battle, right? There's always someone that's carrying the flag. So they said, yes, but, but you know, you're not going to be able to defend yourself. He said, you know, I'll wear my armor and I'll hold the flag. So subhanAllah, eventually, they allowed him to do that in this decisive battle. Now, the battle of Qadisiyah raged for three days. It was a battle where the Persians employed elephants that literally they sent out to stomp people to death on the other side. I mean, this was a violent, large battle. Abdullah ibn Maktoum anhu, he takes the flag. He is the flag bearer of the Muslims, a man who never fought before. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is granting him He had a desire inside of him He had a desire to be of the greatest uh, of those Muslims And someone who sacrificed everything that happened before So they said subhanAllah that the narrations mentioned That he even, you know, in order to make sure he wouldn't fall back Because of the thrust of just the, the winds of war I mean he couldn't see anything So he, they dressed him in armor and he just held the flag He put his feet, literally planted his feet under the ground so that he couldn't move because he didn't want to move and so when the battle would rage he's literally got his feet kind of buried into the ground in a way that he's firmly planted and that he wouldn't fall so he goes and he stands in the middle of this battle subhanallah holding the flag covered in armor with his feet an old sahabi one of the first people to become muslim and no one could tell him no and on that day, this was the third day of Qadisiyah, out of the 30,000 Muslims, about 8,500 of them were killed. We talk about stishad, like the amount of people that were martyred, over 8,000 of the 30,000 uh, were killed. Over 40,000 Persians were killed. And so, subhanAllah, in that day, they, as they went to count all of these Sahaba, that had passed away. Multiple companions, multiple tabi'een passed away in this battle. And this was, of course, the battle, by the way, that opened the next step for the eventual fall of the Persian Empire. This was it. Once Qadisiyah was done, that was it. So Allah granted them victory. They found Abdullah ibn Maktoum, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and subhanAllah, he was laying down and he had the flag clutched to his chest. Radiallahu ta'ala anhu. How beautiful, subhanAllah. Clutching the flag of La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah the man who used to go out and who used to call the adhan, even though he couldn't see Fajr, the Prophet knew and Allah knew that he had something in his heart that could see because the eyes are not blind, it is the hearts that are blind. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honored him with being one upon whom Qur'an, for whom Qur'an came down, a mu'addin of the Prophet the governor of Medina in the absence of the Prophet 
the one who was appointed to lead prayer, the one who was honored by the most honored family of the Prophet and here, the man who was honored as a shaheed, as a martyr as well in this battle of Qadisiyah. May Allah be pleased with him, have mercy upon him. May Allah allow us to be gathered with the Prophet with the companions, with his family, with the prophets, with the righteous ones. And what a blessed companionship that is. Allahumma ameen wa sallallahu wa sallam rabbina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Inshallah ta'ala next week we're going to talk about none other than Mus'ab ibn Umair radiallahu ta'ala anhu which is one of the most touching uh, stories that we find in the seer of the Sahaba. So inshallah ta'ala I will see you then. And for now we have a few minutes before Isha so I'll actually go ahead and take questions inshallah.